You are tuned in to the Green College Lecture Series, broadcast on CITR 101.9 FM and online at citr.ca. This podcast is sponsored by CITR. For details on upcoming lectures and other free public events at Green College, visit www.greencollege.ubc.ca and click on the events calendar. Good afternoon, everybody, uh, and a very warm welcome to the second annual Richard V. Erickson Lecture, hosted by Green College, this year in association with UBC Law at Allard Hall. My name is Mark Vesey, and it's my good fortune to be the third principal of Green College at UBC, an institution which recently began its 20th year, and which, for as long as it lasts and as long as it knows itself, will honor Richard Erickson first principle of the college as its founding intelligence and one of its guiding spirits. The Ericsson Lectures are made possible by the generosity of members of the Ericsson family and of Richard's friends, colleagues and admirers in Vancouver and around the world who set up an endowment in his memory in 2007. This year's lecture, like its predecessor, has also been handsomely sponsored by an anonymous member of the Green College Society. At least, he was going to remain anonymous until a moment ago, uh, at which point he gave me permission to blow his cover. Uh, and it is a, a great pleasure to do that. Um, Dr. Arnab Guha, uh, whose UBC PhD is from the Department of English, um, and who was a resident member of Green College between 1996 and 1999, and truly one of the moving spirits of that place at that time. Um, now lives most of the time in Toronto when he's not on special assignment in other places. Um, and we are extremely grateful uh, to Arnab uh, for his support for the Ericsson Lecture Series. Thank you, Arnab. For greenies in the audience, I should perhaps explain that when you leave the college, when you no longer reside there, you become a member of the Green College Society. What do members of the Green College Society do? Various things. There's an example. <laughs> it's a great pleasure as well uh, to welcome Richard's widow Diana and son Matthew back to UBC and to Green College. Point Grey was their home for many years, they've made long journeys to be with us again today, and we're deeply honored by their presence, Matt and Diana. Thank you very much. The first Ericsson lecture was given in September 2011 by Andrew Coyne, who was then the national editor of Maclean's magazine. It was entitled, The First Spike, a reconstruction of Canadian nationalism. You can find a transcript of that lecture and view a webcast by going to the page for the Ericsson Lectures at the college's website. This year, we've had the additional privilege of enjoying the company of our Ericsson lecturer, Professor Martha Feynman, for several weeks at the college, where she's been a Cecil H. and Ida Green visiting professor in residence. As a critical legal scholar and publicly engaged intellectual after Richard Ericsson's heart, Martha has been an affable but powerful reminder of the reasons we have to continue to celebrate his scholarly achievement 
and to honour his memory. Not only has she brought her ideas and friendship to the common table of Green College on a daily basis, in the course of presenting her own work and that of others at the college during her visit, she's also activated many of the same interdisciplinary networks that Richard himself so brilliantly energised, including the axis of law and society that's been a fundamental feature of the Green College intellectual experiment from the beginning, and that is also one of the glories of interdisciplinarity at UBC. By the same token, Professor Feynman's acceptance of our invitation has provided us with an opportunity for which we're grateful to the Dean of Law and her colleagues and to the staff of Allard Hall to bring the movable feast of the Ericsson Lecture to this splendid new venue. To speak for the Dean and to offer some remarks of his own for the occasion, I'm very pleased to introduce Associate Dean of Law, Professor Ben Gould. Thank you very much. Um, it's my great pleasure uh, to be able to welcome you all here to Allard Hall and to, uh, on behalf of the faculty, to be able to host, or co-host rather, with Green College, the uh, second annual Richard V. Erickson Lecture. Um, we're very privileged to have such a wonderful space as this, and it's, it's uh, enormously gratifying to us in the law school to be able to have, hold events like this and to see you all here. So it's, uh, it's a great privilege to be able to look up and see this room being used in the way it was intended. Um, I, um, I'm very lucky to... Uh, be in a position to be able to say a few things about Richard today. I uh, first met Richard when I was a doctoral student at Oxford University when he was a visiting professor at All Souls College in 1998 uh, and then had the privilege of being a colleague with him when I started my academic career at, at Oxford in 2003. Um, as someone who works in areas that Richard touched, I'm a criminologist who works on policing, uh, surveillance and risk, uh, I think I'm well placed to say that he was, in my mind, one of the most influential sociologists of his generation. Uh, his work on policing, uh, crime in the media, risk, insurance, governance, changed the way academics in a variety of fields uh, think. He had touched sociology, criminology, theories of regulation. His work has, has spanned uh, a vast variety of different uh, cognitive, cognitive areas. Uh, and it's, I think, a testament to the quality of his scholarship uh, that his work continues to be uh, referenced, shaping debates, and they're actively engaged in discussions across, uh, across the globe. Um, in terms of the areas that I, I find myself writing on, uh, policing, surveillance and the like, I find myself constantly going back to policing the risk society, one of his, uh, his most influential works, both just to remind myself uh, of, of, of uh, these incredibly important points that he made in our field, but also as a touchstone for sort of scholarly inspiration. Richard's work uh, was incredibly well researched, well argued, uh, balanced, fair and provocative. And it was, as I said, it's something that myself and my colleagues constantly refer to when we go forward thinking about how to apply our own work to the field. Um, the last thing to say, and I, this is on a more personal note, I, both as a graduate student and as a colleague I had an opportunity to work with Richard and I, and I experienced very much firsthand his encouragement and support. I think many of us who work in academia know what those early years are like as you toil through your doctorate, then you take your pre-tenured position and the insecurity that comes with that. And kind words, encouraging words of support, uh, and just generally being a good colleague um, can make an enormous difference to people's academic careers. And I'm very uh, delighted to be able to say, and to say this publicly, that Richard had an enormous 
influence in me in those early years. It was very, uh, I was very privileged to have his support, uh, particularly uh, in my early years at Oxford. And uh, for what's been very apparent to me is I've come and moved here to Vancouver and uh, now work very close to where Richard uh, was at Green College. I constantly bump into people who've had similar experiences. I encounter his former graduate students, his former colleagues at Green College, and people across the university and across the province um, who have had similar experiences. We'll speak very warmly of how Richard, uh, often with uh, a kind word or, or much more, offered the sort of support that actually makes a huge difference in people's lives. So it's a great privilege to actually be able to welcome you all here uh, for this lecture. Um, I'm going to hand over to my colleague Margot Young, who's going to take us forward and speak more about our speaker. So thank you. Thank you, Ben. My name is Margot Young, and I'm a faculty member here at the Faculty of Law. I'm also co-convener of Green College's Law and Society series, so I have to say I, I come to this talk with a commitment to both the law faculty and the Green College, and it's really lovely to see um, this lecture taking place in our new law building. I've been given the very pleasant task of introducing Martha Alberson Feynman to you, and I talked to Martha yesterday in her office and said, is there anything you'd like me to say particularly in your introduction? And she said, no, make it, make it quick, make it short. They're always so boring and, and, and she's a humble person. So I think there's great wisdom in that, not for the reasons she gave, but because in fact, listening to Martha will let you see why she is so acclaimed rather than me simply telling you the many features of her long series and lists of accomplishments that, that more formally demonstrate that. But, but I do want to say a few words about Martha and I begin then by noting that Martha is the Robert W. Woodruff Professor at the Emory Law School. She is past director and founder of the Feminist Legal Theory Project, which was an incredibly important project to me when I was a young feminist graduate student at Berkeley, a really uh, a landmark series of conferences and encouragement for feminist legal theory and thought at that period of its time, very important in the history of feminist legal theory in both Canada and the United States. Martha is currently the director of Emory's Vulnerability and the Human Condition Initiative. Again, another really path-breaking approach and, and, and series of academic uh, endeavors around key important issues in feminist legal theory. Martha is, of course, the author of dozens of articles and several very fine and important books. She. Um, really is one of the finest of our feminist legal theorists, and we're so fortunate to have her here at UBC. Martha's visit is near its end. She's been here for about three weeks, but from the perspective of those of us at UBC, it's been a very rich visit. So Martha has been generous in her time. She has given a number of talks or seminar sessions around campus to varieties of audiences. She's been an absolutely fabulously available and helpful mentor, helpful mentor to many of our graduate students. And as she's been a, a, a constant denizen of the law faculty as well, she's really been quite a wonderful addition to the collegiality that we experience amongst the faculty at the law school. So we're very lucky to have Martha here. It's been, I would say, um, an incredibly valuable and intellectually useful visit from our perspective, but it's also on a personal level been just delightful 
to have Martha around and to have a chance to get to know her and to engage with her work more. We're really pleased you came. We're sorry you're going, but we hope you come again. So having said that, and, and trying to keep with Martha's wishes that I turn the podium over in some short or reasonable order to her, I'm, I'm just going to say welcome to Martha Feynman, who will be talking today about vulnerability and the human condition. We really are so pleased to have you here and so lucky to be able to spend some time listening to you today. Thank you. I have two microphones on, so I position these. Well, I have to turn one on, too, I think. Um, I'm really very pleased to be here and to be able to uh, give the Erickson Lecture. I, I've been having a wonderful time at Green College. It's a, a unique and uh, marvelous place, and I had no idea that anything like it existed in the world, and I, I feel very enriched uh, having spent almost a whole month there uh, and meeting um, people that I hope will be friends uh, for a long time. Um, so thank you very much for, for coming, and thank you to Green College and to the law school for this opportunity to give the Erickson Lecture. Uh, this afternoon, I'm going to talk about the concepts of human vulnerability and resilience. And I want to use these concepts to argue for a more egalitarian and responsive state. Now, my focus in this lecture is going to be on the United States because it's the system that I know best. But um, I think that the points that I'm going to make are relevant for any legal system that addresses discrimination as a primary cause of social, economic, and political inequality, or for any system in which individual liberty or autonomy is seen as a paramount virtue. I begin with the discussion of the limitations of equality as it is understood in the United States. US constitutional jurisprudence requires that individuals who are alike or the same must be treated alike or the same. This is formal equality. The sameness of treatment version of equality uh, positions discrimination as the major impediment to achieving equality. Its methodology is comparative. A person or group of persons asserts that they are inappropriately being treated differently from another person or group of persons, and that person or group is legal, legally indistinguishable from them. In making this comparison, the law ignores most contexts, as well as differences in circumstances and abilities. And the, on the part of the people who are, treated, who are being compared, they are treated as though they are the same. Differences may come into the discussion as a defense. Uh, they can operate as a justification for different or discriminatory treatment but otherwise, an equivalence of position and possibilities are presumed. Such a narrow approach to equality is in ineffective in combating the growing inequality in wealth and political power that we have experienced in the United States over the past few decades. <coughs> Profound inequalities in circumstances, status, and well-being are tolerated, even justified, by reference to individual responsibility and warnings about addictive dependency of welfare payments. The state is not required to respond to these inequalities, nor does it have to establish mechanisms 
to ensure more equitable distributions of economic, political, or social goods. Quite the opposite, the state is restrained from interference with an asserted meritocracy and the workings of a market constructed as free. This is meritocracy, or a cartoon about meritocracy. The state is restrained from intervening to readjust relationships or reorder responsibilities uh, between and among individuals, groups, and institutions. Of course, our history in the United States, the state has had to intervene in response to social uh, movements and political pressures. American law has had to recognize that there have been distortions in access and opportunity within our free market system. Equal protection laws developed mid-20th century offer special heightened judicial scrutiny to distinctions drawn along the lines of some personal characteristics or social categories, such as race, gender, and ethnicity. But note, it is not discrimination in general that has given this heightened review, only discrimination directed at a few groups within society, those groups who were able to successfully mobilize the political and legal systems and press for inclusion and protection. A person who cannot claim membership in one of those groups is relatively unprotected. They can be fired from employment on the whim of an employer for any reason whatsoever, or denied housing or access to good to goods and services, so long as the dismissal or denial are not based on impermissible classifications like race or gender. It is not surprising that this approach to inequality has generated a politics of resentment and backlash on the part of those who fall outside of the favored groups. Ironically, it doesn't always work to the benefit of those who are, who are favored either. One protected group can be pitted against another in a zero-sum game. Our equality approach divides those who may otherwise be allies in a struggle for a more, more just society. It casts them as competitors in a struggle over just whose oppression counts. Legal and political battles revolve around questions of whether a specific group seeking protection can be determined to constitute a, quote, discrete and insular minority and whether they can show that there's a lengthy history of exclusion and discrimination against them, thus allowing an analogy to be drawn to groups that are historically <coughs> protected. This is what is now unfolding in regard to lesbian and gay men who are fighting for marriage equality by arguing their exclusion from the institution is discriminatory and based on animus. In doing so, they draw reference, uh, they reference miscegenation statutes that prohibited interracial marriage, uh, those statutes that were struck down as violating equal protection in the 1960s. This approach has generated substantial resentment and resistance on the part of some religious African Americans and others who don't see marriage equality on, on the same scale as the civil rights struggles over racial oppression. And the um, minister there is uh, Bishop Harry Jackson Jr who in his uh, Hope Christian Church in uh, Prince George County, Maryland, actually organizes against uh, marriage equality. He's uh, so opposed to it. This uh, resentment is a troubling legacy of our na narrow identity-based anti-discrimination approach to equality. Few groups are protected, and those that are may not want to see 
their protection diluted by what they view as a lesser claim to a civil rights mantle. Perhaps even more significant, however, is the way that the equality discourse that is organized around identity characteristics distorts our um, understanding of a variety of social problems. Identity categories have become proxies for problems like poverty or the failure of public education. The focus only on certain groups in regard to these problems obscures the institutional, social, and cultural forces that distribute privilege and disadvantage in systems that transcend identity characteristics. <clears throat> in fact, nestled safely within the rhetoric of individual responsibility and autonomy, identity-based anti-discrimination doctrine actually works to enshrine the notion that American, America generally provides for equal access and equal opportunity. Impermissible discrimination is cast as the discoverable and correctable exception to an otherwise just and fair system in which individuals are at liberty to compete on equal terms. Well then, what happens to those who fail in this system? For one thing, they have been herded together by psychologists, sociologists, political scientists, public health practitioners, and others who study them, these failures, as members of designated vulnerable populations. The political and legal response to these populations is typically surveillance and regulation. The response can be punitive and stigmatizing, as it is with prisoners, youth at risk, or single mothers needing welfare assistance, or the response can be paternalistic and stigmatizing, as it is with a response to the deserving poor, such as the elderly, poor children, and individuals with disabilities. But note <clears throat> what the populations have in common is stigma. Their perceived vulnerability marks them as lesser, imperfect, deviant, and places them somehow outside of the protections of the social contract. Interestingly, sometimes the protected identity group, uh, a protected identity group ends up being labeled as a vulnerable population. For example, the Urban Institute Health Policy Center defines vulnerable populations as, quote, groups that are not well integrated into the health, into the health system and continues, commonly cited examples of vulnerable populations include racial and ethnic minorities, the rural and urban poor, undocumented immigrants, and people with disabilities or multiple chronic conditions. <clears throat> now my point in bringing the Obama girls and uh, Stephen Hawking uh, in, into this at this point, pictures of them into this point, is not to suggest that the Obama children and Hawking are not vulnerable. Of course they are, but so are all of us. The conception of vulnerability as belonging only to certain groups or populations of people is not only misleading and inaccurate, it is also pernicious. In the first place, clustering individuals into what is conceptualized as a cohesive population based on one or two shared characteristics masks significant differences among those individuals. And this is true whether the characteristics are identity-based, such as race or gender, or status-based, such as poor or immigrant. Secondly, asserting a group has significant differences from the general population obscures the similarities 
that members of that group will share with members of a larger society. In other words, the groupings are both over and under inclusive. However, the most insidious effect of segmenting society so that only some are designated as belonging to a vulnerable population is that it suggests that the rest of us are not vulnerable. Those who stand outside of the construct of vulnerable populations are constructed as invulnerable. Anyone who has ever tended to a child, responded to an accident or emergency, experienced a natural, natural disaster, been victim of a crime, fell, been injured or ill, or experienced many of the other routine life experiences of vulnerability knows that there is no such thing as invulnerability. In fact, the inescapable and unavoidable fact of human vulnerability raises a fundamental question for society, for law, and for policy. What should be the political and legal implications of the fact that we are embodied beings? We all are born, live, and die within a fragile materiality that renders all of us constantly susceptible to both internal and external forces that are sometimes beyond our control. To begin to answer that very important question, I want to consider three things. First, how should we imagine a legal subject? How should we imagine what it means to be human, in other words? And note here, the legal subject is a universal subject. We are all bound by law, all subject to law, so that the legal subject is a universal subject. The second thing I want to consider are the legal, cultural, and societal functionings of institutions. So how do institutions operate in our society? And third, what are the responsibilities of a just state in regard to individuals and institutions? <coughs> All right, this is the universal legal subject as he now stands. Our long-standing universal legal subject is the autonomous, independent, liberal subject of Lachnerian lore. The liberal subject is a competent social actor, capable of playing multiple and concurrent adult and formerly all male roles, the employer, the employee, the spouse, the parent, the consumer, the manufacturer, the citizen, the taxpayer, and so on. This liberal subject informs our economic, legal, and political principles. It is indispensable to the prevailing ideologies of autonomy, self-sufficiency, and personal responsibility. Society is conceived of as constituted by self-interested individuals with the capacity to ma manipulate and manage their independently acquired and overlapping resources. Rather than being dependent on or assisting or asserting entitlement to the provision of socioeconomic goods by the state, the liberal subject demands only the autonomy that will enable him to provide for himself and his family. His demand for liberty is refined as a freedom to make choices the right to contract. Importantly, this demand for liberty on the part of the individual effectively also operates as a restraint on the state. The state is deterred from interfering with individual liberty, even for the purpose of ensuring greater social equality. The image of what it means to be human that is reflected in this liberal subject is reductive, and it fails to capture the complicated nature of the human condition. Our conception of the universal legal subject 
should embrace a more complex reality by bringing human dependency and vulnerability to the center of the inquiry of what it means to be human. Okay, so this is the vulnerable legal subject. And notice there are two versions. Uh, there's the male version, which is undressed, and then there is the female version of the uh, vulnerable subject, which is not only overdressed, but also uh, in various stages of relationship with other, uh, other uh, stages of, uh, of life. This is kind of interesting. A vulnerable, uh, vulnerability approach replaces the liberal subject with a vulnerable subject. The vulnerable subject embodies the realization that vulnerability is a universal and constant aspect of the human condition. Dependency and vulnerability are not deviant, but natural and inevitable. Unlike the liberal subject, the concept of the vulnerable subject also reflects the fact that humans live over a life course. It takes the passage of time into account. We will be perceived by others and experience ourselves as weak and in need, as dependent, as well as empowered and strong at different developmental stages in our lives and as we pass through various experiences and environments and social stages. The liberal subject at best captures only one stage, the freely functioning, unencumbered adult stage of human existence, the stage where we are least likely uh, to be experiencing acute vulnerability. An individual will encounter a myriad of opportunities, frustrations, and challenges, successes, and defeats, necessitating a wide range of expertise and capabilities during his or her own life. These encounters can be negative, such as those involving disease, pandemics, environmental catastrophes, terrorism, crime, crumbling infrastructure, falling institu failing institutions, recessions, corruption, and physical decline. But they can also be positive, such as those that evoke feelings that seem to arise spontaneously as we encounter nature or art, or a person generates within us feelings of love, friendship, and compassion. That's about vulnerability, too. We are situated beings who live with the ever-present possibility of changing circumstances, circumstances that may alter our needs and desires, both individually and also in our collective lives. We will have little or no control over many of these circumstances. Individual agency, at best, will suffice only in, in, and, some, only in and to some situations and at some stages of human development. In addition, a vulnerability approach recognizes that vulnerability cannot be eradicated, cannot be eliminated. There is no position of invulnerability, only the perspective and promise of resilience. Now resilience <clears throat> comes from the material, psychological, spiritual, and other resources that we can draw on in specific times of crisis or opportunity. And those who lack a certain degree of resilience should not for that reason alone be isolated into populations and condemned, stigmatized, or disciplined, considered unable to participate in the social contract. Resilience is not something that we are born with fully formed. Resilience is found in the resources and assets we accumulate over the course of our lifetime. And resilience is produced over time and within social structures and social conditions over which individuals 
may have little control. A lack of resilience is often more than just an individual failure. It also may be the result of the failure of society. And that brings me to the paradox of vulnerability or the vulnerability theory that I am working on. While it must initially be understood as universal and constant when we're considering the general human condition, vulnerability simultaneously must be understood as particular, as varied and unique on the individual level. Two forms of individual difference are relevant when we start to talk about difference in vulnerability. First are the physical, mental, intellectual, and other variations in human embodiment. The variations in human embodiment are not socially neutral. Historically, some of these variations have led to the creation of hierarchies and discrimination and even violence. As mentioned earlier, these differences or variations can also be the basis for segregation of individuals into a vulnerable population category. The appropriate legal response to this type of bias and or exclusion is to improve and strengthen existing anti-discrimination measures, perhaps building better um, and complementary affirmative action and social welfare programs to make up for past discrimination and to reduce the significance of, of, of disadvantage in the future. But it is the second form of difference that I want to talk about because I find it more theoretically interesting at this particular point in my own uh, development. And this is the differences in social location or position, positioning that individuals experience as they move through life. So what I'm doing here is bringing the social institutions into conversation with the vulnerable subject. And in doing so, I want to shift the focus away from individual responsibility and the individual and on to the institutional level. We're all differently situated within webs of economic, social, cultural, and institutional relationships. Those relationships structure our options and create or impede our opportunities. Indeed, one way to think about the very formation of society and its institutions is to posit that it is human vulnerability that brings individuals into families, families into communities, and communities into societies, nation states, and international organizations. Further, individuals are dependent not only on their relationships with each other, but also on the interactions they inevitably have with the institutions and political stu structures that society has constructed. Those institutions, be they deemed public or private institutions, be they family or market, is how we gain access to the resources to which to, we can confront, ameliorate, satisfy, or compensate for our vulnerability. In other words, how we build our resilience through those institutions. <coughs> resources can come in many different forms, and so far uh, we've actually identified five uh, different kinds of resources that we talk about in the vulnerability context. Physical resources, uh, which are physical or material goods that determine um, the present our present quality of life, uh, and these can in in involve a lot of things, savings, investment, the financial system. Uh, human resources that contribute to our human development, allowing participation in the market, for example, things like uh, education, training, and knowledge. Social resources, 
Uh, these are less tangible, including the family, social networks, political parties, uh, but they also, in recent years, have included um, organizing around identity characteristics such as race and gender and ethnicity. Again, this gives us a resource, the kind of identification. Ecological resources, of course, very important, and existential resources uh, are provided by systems of belief uh, that also uh, give us resilience, give us uh, resources with which to confront our vulnerability. All right. These uh, resources are accumulated and dissipated in the course of a lifetime in the process of making decisions, responding and reacting to life's circumstances. At times of both crisis or opportunity, our accumulated resources define what are our realistic options and they limit or enhance our autonomy. They define the scope and nature of our ability to exercise agency. These resources cannot eliminate our inherent vulnerability, but they can and do mediate, compensate, and lessen the experiences of that vulnerability. Note, our experience with, experiences with these institutions are often concurrent and interactive, but they can also be sequential. For example, the relationship between the educational system and the employment and social security systems are sequential. Collectively, they provide for the accumulation of resources, creating assets for use in the present and preserving possibilities for our future. But significantly, the failure of one system in sequence, such as the failure to receive an adequate education, affects future prospects. Often, it is impossible uh, to fully compensate for such failures, given that the systems further down the line are constructed in reliance on successfully fulfilling the earlier steps. Someone who misses out on education typically will have fewer options and opportunities in the workplace, which will make for a more precarious retirement. On the other hand, and also important, is the fact that sometimes privileges conferred in one concurrent system can compensate for or even cancel out disadvantages in others. For example, a good, start, a good early start in regard to education, such as it provided by Head Start, may trump poverty as a predictor of success later in school. This may be particularly true when that advantage is coupled with other advantages, such as the relational system can provide, such as a supportive family or a progressive social network. In other words, society's institutions interact in ways that actually produce or fail to produce social, political, and economic resilience. They can confer privilege or disadvantage, and an initial privilege or disadvantage may determine if an individual is able to fully benefit from other systems. Because this is true, the impact of privileges and disadvantages within these systems is cumulative and may have a significant and more profound effect than isolated gains or losses would suggest. Now <clears throat> would be a good time to remind ourselves about these institutions, that these powerful resource-giving institutions like the family, corporations, schools, financial institutions, are also constructs of the state. This brings the state into the discussion along with <clears throat> institutions, asking the question, how should our understanding of individuals, of the vulnerable subject, and, and uh, institutions, how should that inform our notion of a just state? What is a just state? The state is certainly powerful 
and it is the legitimating authority of law <coughs> and the regulatory machinery of the state that creates institutions such as marriage uh, or the family and mandates the corporate form. The law both assigns and will enforce content and consequences to these institutions and also uh, controls their dissolution. In doing all of this, the state also establishes that it has a monopoly over legitimate means of coercion. This is one of the way, ways in which the state actually constitutes itself. The state should have some significant responsibility to see that these institutions, which are so vital and important both to individuals and to society, function in an egalitarian manner. Their flaws, barriers, gaps, and potential pitfalls must be monitored and these institutions adjusted when they are functioning in ways harmful to individuals and society. The values should be, that should be applied in making the decisions or considering adjustments must be democratic and publicly oriented, reflecting the norms of equality and open access and shared opportunity. <coughs> now, any call for a more responsive state, as I just made, uh, stay along the lines that I suggest we need, must first confront the restrained state ideology, which is based on privileging liberty, autonomy for the individual, and freedom for the market. It is an ideology that ignores the fact that the state actually creates not only institutions as legitimate entities, but also the conditions under which they operate. This realization should make it clear that the choice is not one between an active state on the one hand and an inactive state on the other. The state is always at least a residual actor. But that's not enough. I really want to er argue that the state is really very active. It actively protects and privileges certain entities such as the family and religious organizations, for example. It also punishes and disciplines individuals and organizations. State mechanisms enforce private agreements, contracts, and provide for security and structure, uh, again, on a day-to-day -day basis. In fact, one characteristic uh, of the um, relationship between institutions and the state would be to say that the state is actually responding to the vulnerability of institutions. The vulnerability of corporate or business institutions to uh, prohibitive start-off costs, such as we see in the gas and oil industry, uh, or ongoing production or operation snafus, farmers are fond of bringing those up, routinely are evoked to justify subsidies from the states. Whether the subsidy takes the form of tax policies, direct transfers, and investment are delivered through facilitating access to mechanisms of state authority such as law, the utilization of infrastructures, and access to pu a publicly educated workforce. But it is not these forms of state response, of course, uh, state response to market vulnerability that call for demands uh, to restrain the state. Rather, the demands to restrain the state are brought into being when it's monitoring or regulation that's a control. We, want, we don't want a monitored or regulated marketplace. So I ask the question, is that reasonable, that resistance to regulation and monitoring? <clears throat> and I conclude it is not, particularly when we consider a different form of corporate vulnerability. 
And this is the vulnerability of the corporate form to manipulation, misbehavior, and corruption. A vulnerability that results from uh, the law and culture that demands that the corporation produce hefty profits for shareholders and massive salaries for CEOs. This vulnerability actually provides, I think, a compelling argument for a much more attentive and responsive state than we currently have. Wasn't this lack of such a state a significant factor behind the practices that led to the Great Recession, which we're still emerging from? Further, warranting a state response is the fact that when unrestrained and unregulated corporations act consistent with the profit motive, they can generate further vulnerability for themselves and create hazards for society. Consider how the state responded to the increasing vulnerable position of certain big businesses caused by falling markets during the recession. Heightened vulnerability was met with loans to the auto industry and bailouts for the financial industry. <clears throat> At the same time, heightened, the heightened vulnerability of the individual mortgage uh, holder created in the wake of the same crisis was ignored. His pleas, uh, his pleas assigned to the realm of individual respons responsibility, government aid deflected with cries of moral hazard. The state played favorites, choosing to help vulnerable institutions, but not vulnerable individuals. It's important to recognize that the state does do this, and that also that the state can be, and has been, abusive, overreaching, and authoritative. Like its institutions, the state is vulnerable to capture corruption and misdirection. Sometimes the misdirection comes from the outside, such as when powerful entrenched interests hijack even the most egalitarian impulses for their own purposes, but often it is the result of flaws or weaknesses in the design or operation of the state structures and practices. And this is what we currently see in the United States in the corrupted legislative culture, which actually provides incentives for repressive tactics, distortions of the truth, and democracy-frustrating partisanship. But we need the state. We cannot flourish without it. And state vulnerabilities will be present whether this state is constituted as restrained or as responsive. So it might as well be responsive in ways that benefit the common good. In conclusion, I know that orienting the state uh, to be responsive to the vulnerable subject would require the dedication, a dedication to a different set of values than those that inform the state built on the image of the liberal subject. Vulnerability's values would be more egalitarian and collective in nature, um, preferring and rewarding relationships of connection and interdependence rather than autonomy and independence. A responsive state also might have to repair the damage that has been done by privileging liberty over equality, the grace versus inequality. This would necessitate looking at existing structures of privilege as well as entrenched disadvantage and dismantling those structures, rebuilding them in a more egalitarian way, greater access and greater opportunity. And institutions that allocate society's resources would have to be actively monitored. The responsible state is a regulatory state. We can imagine such a state. The question is whether we can build one. And here's my good state. This is the uh, responsive state, a utopian version and a dystopian uh, version.
So thank you very much. <laughs> Listen to UBC Green College campus lecture about inequality, and I'm here to play several songs which are related to the topic of the lecture, inequality. I really would like you to enjoy these songs. Thank you. What's a flag in a pawn shop to me? I saw a man on the TV in a mask with a gun. A man on the TV, he had a ten-year-old son. I saw a man on the TV, his son had a gun.
the doorstep, waiting our way. There's a baby on the doorstep, longing for the day. There's a baby on the doorstep who gives his life to take a flare to a pawn shop, a flare to a pawn shop. May he forget why he is crying so dear. Together we must come 
Listening to the Green College Lecture Series, sponsored by CITR 101.9 FM. You can also download the podcast at www.citr.ca. For details on upcoming lectures and other free public events at Green College, visit www.greencollege.ubc.ca and click on the events calendar. Tune in next week to hear more from the Green College Lecture Series. You're listening to Peanut Butter and Jams with hosts Brenda and Jordy on CITR 101.9, exploring local music and local food. Tune in to learn about the best eats and tunes from your neighborhood and a weekly pairing for your date calendar. Warning, the endorsements and criticism expressed during the show are the opinions of the hosts, unless clearly identified as advertising. Put in your earbuds and fire up your taste buds. It's Peanut Butter and Jams. Hello. Hello. You are listening to CITR 101.9 FM. It's time for Peanut Butter and Gems on CITR. That's us, and that was an old version of our intro with no song. But we have a jingle. We do have a jingle. And it's uh, pretty exciting. Laughing and grooving. Right. Something and something, forking and spooning. Keep going. Something, something, dinner's on soon, and get ready for, ready for peanut butter and jams. Thank you, Jordy. That was really nice. That's a bad version of the song that Chris Rivers sings very nicely. I hope you are singing along. He even knows all the words. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to have a show promo soon, too. Duncan offered to make us one. 